worship. Man, four years goes quick. I was looking kind of young four years ago. <laughs> that's the way it always is, but uh, that's okay too. Uh, I want to read something from First Timothy. You don't have to turn there. It's just, I think it's appropriate for today. Chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. This is what it says. The things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, Paul says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. That's what restore is. That's what restore will always be. By the grace of God, we will teach and preach the truth here. I have enough godly men. I have enough godly women. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me to make sure we will teach truth here no matter what the world does, what the world says. Here at Restore, we will preach the truth. He goes on to say, which we'll be looking at today, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. We're waiting on his precious return. That's what we'll be looking at this morning, that uh, Jesus Christ has gone back to Jerusalem. He has did a great work, a great miracle to the infirm man who had been infirm for 38 years. Jesus, the God-man, tells him, pick up your bed, arise, and walk. When everyone should have been just praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord for this great act, as he picks up his mat and goes to the temple, hopefully to worship the Lord, He runs into these religious leaders, and they begin to question him. They don't say anything about the great work of God and his grace that he had performed in this infirm man. They begin to say, why are you carrying this load? Why are you carrying this burden on the Sabbath? He says, all I know is the man came to me And of all of the people that were around the pool of Bethesda, I was probably the least of who he would have ever come to. And I'm in the back, and he he tells me to pick up my bed and walk. And so I don't know who he, he is because he disappeared quickly. But later on, Jesus would find him, the Bible says, in the midst of the multitudes because it was one of the great feasts. And so Four to six million people were there, and Jesus finds him in the temple, and Jesus tells him, you need to stop sinning, sin no more, because all Jesus had did at the time was release the man from his physical burden. But Jesus wanted to do a greater work, and I pray that that happened, that he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And so when he does that, he goes back, and the religious leaders, he must have ran up upon them. He begins to tell them, hey, the guy, his name was Jesus. And so I'm sure they hunted him down. And remember, 
what John is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. John picks out seven signs, miracles, really signs. And these signs, every sign that Jesus would do would point to who he is. God, the Messiah, the son of the living God, as much as God as the father, as much as God as the spirit. We're going to look at that. And as they confront Jesus, they begin to ask him, who gives you the authority to do these things? And why would you tell this man to pick up his burden and walk on the Sabbath? So this entire, the rest of this chapter, Jesus will be answering them. This is why. I can command this man to do this. This is why, because I supersede the Sabbath. I am greater than the Sabbath. I am greater than the Torah. I am the Torah in the flesh. And I'm only doing what my father has commanded me to do. So he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus had done good. You think when man would do good, there would be a great applause about that because man, we don't do good all of the time. Jesus did. And what we're looking at is this great, there would be a great dispute, a great squabble because he's Going toe-to-toe, Jesus is with these well-trained theologians. They know the word. They have, they think all of this authority. So the question will be, who owns the Sabbath? Jesus is going to tell them, and you know, through the synoptic gospels, Mark says he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. God, Jesus was meaning to do this. Remember, as they're going through the grain field in the book of Mark, they get the grain, rub it in their hands. I don't know if the Pharisees and the Sadducees were hiding in the grain field, but all of a sudden they picked up their heads, they popped up and said, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. So Jesus is well known for healing for doing all of these things on the Sabbath because he's trying to get them to understand I am Lord over the Sabbath. Your focus needs to be somewhere else. I'm thankful. I'm glad that God works on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to let them know my father works and I always work on the Sabbath. They had a disagreement about this. It was four prominent Rabbis, the story is told, they go to Rome and some Roman scholars begin to uh, uh, ask them, does God work on the Sabbath or not? So they try to get around this issue very shrewdly and this is what they said. They said, God carried no load outside the limit of his own dwelling. That would be heaven and earth. So they're trying to get away with that. And they say, and he lifted nothing to a height which exceeded his own stature. Therefore, all that he did fell within their interpretation of what was admissible on the Sabbath. They all agreed to this, that God works on the Sabbath 
He allows rain. He allows sun. He wakes us up in the morning. He allows children to be born. All of these things he judges when one's die, once someone dies. He does all of that on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, Jesus is wanting them to understand to God is just another ordinary day because he is working. God doesn't take a day off, and I'm thankful for that. So he says in verse 17, but Jesus answered them. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, that's what they thought, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they have a greater issue now. I'm going to give you some characteristics of the Trinity. The Trinity is never spoken of in the scriptures, but if you read through the scriptures, it always implies the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So listen to this. Absolute threeness. Now don't jump up and leave. I'm going to explain this to you. No more than three. These three account for all that God is. No less than three. No two of the Godhead is the same. Each is distinct from the other. No one can be the other. Not one God changing modes. That's not what he's speaking of here. The father can't be the son. The son can't be the spirit. The spirit can't be the father. That's what he's saying. They are one, but not one in the same. So really, absolute oneness. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thou God, the Lord is one. Each one is not part of God. That's what we need to understand. Each one is God. As I was going through the book of Genesis, and I've said different things about when Abraham is sitting outside his tent and these three men walk by, we, we like to say one is Jesus, two are angels. But as I read this, I'm thinking all three was the Godhead right here. Each one is God. Each one is the whole. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, but not separate. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully equal. The terms Father, Son, and Spirit represent their function. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All three were together. That's that's their function now and relationship. Not superiority, not a hierarchy. They just have different functions. That's what we're looking at here. Jesus is about to straighten all of this out. He tells them in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So what the Jehovah Witnesses have a hard time understanding, these religious Jews knew exactly what God was speaking of. He was claiming God as his personal father. That's what Jesus is doing. He says in verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, Now, from this verse right here 
to the rest of the chapter. If you have a red letter Bible, everything else is in red because Jesus is going to take the the statement. He's going to prove why he is Lord over the Sabbath. That's just the beginning because the rest of this chapter, he'll continue to blow their minds. He's Lord of that Sabbath. And, and, and Jesus doesn't withdraw the claim that God is his father. He just continues to move. He says in verse 19, most assuredly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, speaking to these religious leaders who just begin to question him, I wonder if Nicodemus was there. I wonder if Gamaliel or Joseph of Arimathea was there listening to what he's about to say. He says, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees, and that's present tense, what he is seeing. Remember, he said in chapter two that I'm in the bosom of the father. That's a mystery, the mystery of godliness. I'm in heaven with the father, but I'm down here working, but I'm still always in the bosom. So I see him clearly. I understand him clearly. When he does something, I'm watching and I do the same thing that he does. There's intimacy there. That's what he's saying. If you see a man being healed, He says, the reason he's being healed is that the father has initiated me to do this healing. And if you see this man carrying this mat, it's because the father wants him to carry this mat. I'm trying to make a point. So nothing has been done that I say, whoops, he shouldn't be doing that. Even though I healed him, he picks up his mat. What am I going to do? No, the father knows exactly. He's doing exactly what the father wants him to do. It is the father's joy to show the son what to do. And it's the son's joy to obey the father. That should be all of our hearts. It should be our joy when we obey the father. I want us to catch this analogy here because Jews, the Jews were known for whatever occupation their father had, they would train their kids up to learn that occupation. They are known for that. God says, The way they do that is what Jesus is doing. I'm the father. And everything he sees me do, he does the same thing, almost like an apprenticeship. I'm revealing myself to him. His work, he's the unique son. He's the one of a kind son. And everything he sees, what I do, he does. He's come to finish that work, God says, And that will be completed on the cross of Calvary. Why could the son do nothing of himself? Well, Philippians tells us this. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Listen to it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, substance, the nature, the essence of God, whatever that is. It says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I'm not diminishing the father by saying I'm God. That's what he means by that. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is 
what theologians call the kenosis of Christ, the emptying. That's what he does, the emptying of Christ. Jesus self-emptied himself. What did he empty? That's the question. Well, he emptied himself to become a man. That's the first thing. He emptied himself of equality with God. As God, he is equal to the Father. But as a man, once again, he becomes submissive to the Father. His eternal qualities, his omnipotence, not all powerful anymore when he became the babe of Bethlehem. He's not omnipresent anymore. Can't be everywhere at the same time. No, no, he gave all that up. And then his omniscience. He doesn't know all things. And, and the finally, finally, his eternality. He's going to have to suffer death like all of us. But he puts all of that stuff on the shelf. He had to be dependent of the Father. I say this all the time. When Jesus came, everybody says, hey, he worked this miracle. He, he healed this blind man. He called the dead to life. But he couldn't do any of those things unless the Father allowed him to. He walked in obedience. And in his obedience, the Father blessed him. So he's 100% God and 100% man. So he says in verse 20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son. And shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. You would think that word love, he would use agape there. Committed love. God is always committed to it, but he doesn't use that word. He uses phileo. That family love. That fondness. Hey, I love everyone. But I might not like everyone. The father is, he, he has a fondness for the son. He, he, he values the son, and that's what he's saying here. It's a continual fondness of the son. It's a continual embracing of the son. They get along very well. He says, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. These greater works, all he's doing is proclaiming himself to be God. Every work he does shows and emphasizes his divinity. He's wanting them to know that. He says in verse 21, for as the father, he begins to hit them with one wave, with one blow after another. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. Now, in order to be able to give life, You must be the source of life. These guys, once again, we have to understand, they're no Sunday school students asking questions to Jesus. They're scrutinizing his every word. They're parsing every word because they know these five books. And they're trying to catch him. And so Jesus knows all these things. He has no problem with it. He's speaking truth here. But that's what they're doing The Talmud said, God the Father, Jehovah, in the resurrection will call the souls from heaven and call the body from the earth 
put them back together, and then judge them. And so when Jesus says, I have that authority to call the dead to life, they're scratching their heads at this time. They're saying, what? I can't believe you said that. Only God can do that. Only God has the prerogative to do what you say you're going to do. The Jews taught that Jehovah was the keeper of three keys. The key to heavens to allow the rains to come. The key to the womb so that mothers could have children. And then that third key was the key to the grave that would resurrect bodies. They're blown away by what Jesus says. They are staggered because they know Jesus is claiming to be deity here. He says, even so, the son, of, the son gives life to whom he will. Now, we know the prophets in the Old Testament had been the human instruments of God's power. They would raise the dead, but they would never claim that it was them doing it. They always made sure and gave honor to God, that he gave them the power, the ability. They were the human instruments to do these things. Give you an example of that. Remember when the king of Israel, Jehoram was the king. The king of Syria writes a letter to Jehoram and says, hey, I got my general. He has leprosy. And I heard you have a prophet there that can cure him. So as he begins to read this letter, Jehoram, this is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 5 through 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he, that he tore his clothes and said, now notice what he says, am I God? Why would he say that? To kill and to make alive? He must think I'm God. That this man sends me a man to be healed from, of his leprosy. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Because they know once again, no one can do this but Yahweh God. Remember, he tells Naaman to go down, Elijah does, go down to the Jordan, I think, and dip three times. That's what happens there. But they know only God can do that. That's why Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. At that time, I think Jairus' daughter was probably about, when Peter goes, about six hours asleep. I guess you could bring that body back alive. Six hours. Hmm, you could do that, maybe. Paddle them back to life. And then you think about the widow of Nain. They had did all of the burial ceremonies, all of the wrapping on the beer. Jesus sees this procession, touches the beer. The body comes back to life. That body's been dead 12, 14 hours. And we know what he did with Lazarus. No way you were going to resuscitate that body. Three, four days in the grave, he speaks life, he comes, we'll get there. Jesus is doing everything he sees the Father does. He says in verse 22, continue wave after wave, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. By this time, they're furious. They believe once again that God Almighty was the only one that could judge but Jesus tells them all judgment belongs to the son. Even Moses, think back, when he had the children of Israel out in the wilderness. Remember, they were coming to him wave after wave, and he was judging each one's issue. His, his, his uh, 
father-in-law, Jethro, with the wisdom, said, hey, you wear, you're going to wear your stuff out, Moses, doing all this stuff. This is what you need to do. Begins to tell him, divide them up. You handle the hard cases. So even Moses, this is my point, the one the Jews venerated so much, a lot of them claimed that he was deity. Even he couldn't judge everyone. Jesus Christ does. He says in verse 23, for the father judges no one. And the father is the one we always hate on, thinks he's the mean guy. The father says, I don't judge you, but I turn it over to my son. But has committed all judgment to the son. And the reason he does this, this is why, that all shall honor the son just as they honor the father. That word honor means place a specific value on. That's what it means. A specific price upon. How much do we value the son? That's the question. Do we value him? Do we value him with our time? Do we value him with our ministries and our service, whether it's at home, being a good wife, being a good husband, uh, being a good father, being a good son, serving in our communities, all of those things, how much do we value him? You know, I must continually be brought back to alignment with the word of God. Spiritual health is maintenance, and we all need maintenance. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Tell you what, neglect your car and find out what will happen. Neglect your house and find out what will happen. Neglect your marriage and you know what will happen. But the most important thing and, the, and, the, and it's so easy to neglect is our spiritual maintenance, our spiritual health. Now, I love this analogy, and I came up with this analogy, and I came up with this analogy a long time ago when I was a youth pastor. And when we would have uh, service days or things like that, because, you know, at the age of 13, and as you go up, hey, my girlfriend and all these things, I said, this is the issue you have. Okay, got, you say you got a girlfriend. Okay, that's on you. But this is what happens. I can throw one ball, a tennis ball, up in the air, and as old as I am, I think I could catch it every time I threw it up. I think I could do that. But then you put another ball on there. That gets a little difficult. And that first ball is Jesus Christ. Like, as long as I stay focused on him, walk with him. But here comes school. I'm juggling two. You're getting older. Here comes three, the girlfriend, and you're doing this. You become a clown by that time. <laughs> Something is going to drop. Something is going to fall by the wayside. And it's usually who? Jesus Christ. Spiritual health is maintenance. I must abide in the word. I must abide in prayer. I must abide in fellowshipping with the brethren if I want to continue my spiritual maintenance, if I want to continue to grow and be sought in light that the Lord has called me to. I must put him first. 
He who does not honor the son, he says, that means I esteem him, I value him when I do those things, does not honor the father who sent him. The father is saying, while you are trying to protect my honor, because that's what the religious leaders were trying to do. Oh, you're not God. No one can be God but God. You're not God here. Be careful that you don't incur his wrath by not giving honor to my son. That's what he's saying here. Be careful. Don't cast any shade on him because he's just as much God as I am. Oh, he's just a prophet. Oh, he's just a good man. He's an ascended leader, a guru. He has that God spark in him. He's becoming, speaking of Jesus Christ, God, but he's not fully God. The father says, You're, be careful. You can't get to where you want to go by casting shade, by diminishing my son because he's fully God. And he's the one who raises the dead. He's the one that judges. That's what he's saying here. For the second time, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears, and that's continually hears my word and believes in him who sent me, continually believes, has everlasting life, Ionios life, that quality, zoe of life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It is belief that produces everlasting life, belief in Jesus Christ. And it's not that we receive everlasting life when we get to heaven. We have that now when we place our faith faith when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. We have that everlasting life. We have that quality of life. No matter what happens here, no matter what goes on here, whether it's good, you think, or bad, I've got something that no one can take away, and it gives me joy even in midst of a storm because I know I have everlasting life. Jesus said, in this world, we're going to have tribulation. They're going to come. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And the only way a Christian can be of good cheer, we have everlasting life inside of us. You know, when I became a believer, I was ruined to this world. There was a time when I was an unbeliever. I could do, say anything, never be convicted. It wouldn't even think about it. But as soon as I was born again, even when I say a cross word, and I never do, I'm just saying this for me, not for you guys. Even when I do, here comes the Holy Spirit. He begins to speak to me. He begins to convict me. And I say, oh, it'll be okay. I know I should apologize, but I'm not going to apologize. And he continues to convict. And then I repent. And then he hugs me and holds me. And he says, I love you and everything's going to be okay, but let me show you what you should have said and how you should have said it. Because, see, he teaches me, but I'm released from that guilt. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus says in verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming. And that looks forward. He's looking forward now to the resurrection. And then he says, and now is He can say that because, once again, he's in the bosom of the Father. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, 
Now, he's not speaking about those that are in the grave. What was that series? I guess it's still, once upon a time, everybody talked about it and everybody watched it. What was the name of that series? Walking Dead. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what an unbeliever is. The walking dead. That's why he says, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. They are alive physically. Man, that's okay. That, when you're alive physically, when you're born, that puts you on the playing field. That's all that does. You have your opportunity. But it's only when you're born spiritually you have arrived. You have arrived then. Being born physically and never being born spiritually is a waste of a life. Get mad, get upset, I'm telling you like it is. It's a waste of a life. That's all it is. Jim Elliott, we've all heard this quote before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. This man said this at the age of 19 years of age. Committed to God. Committed to serving him. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 16, 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the world physically and loses his own soul spiritually? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We're here for one purpose, to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Nothing else matters because if we seek him first, everything else we will do well. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, that was you and I at a time, will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who will hear, those who hear will live, speaking of everlasting life. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the son to have life in himself, verse 27, and has given him authority. That's the regal right of the king. He taps him on the shoulder. It's yours. To execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Jesus uses that phrase son of man about a hundred times in all the gospels. And he looks back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and this is what it says. I was watching, Daniel says, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and they brought him near before me. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So these religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, what he was talking about, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this. I chuckle because when he says, do not marvel at this, all I can think of is, Tucker Carlson, when he gives you that look, he's, he's just stupefied by what you've just said. And that's what Jesus is telling him, telling him they've been blown away. Don't marvel at this. 
He says, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave, wow, will hear his voice. That beats verse 8 when he says, pick up your mat and walk. They were hot about that. They couldn't believe that. He said, don't marvel at that because I can make a man pick up his uh, bed and walk who's been paralyzed or infirm 38 years. You're going to see greater things. He comes right down here and says, don't marvel at this because those that are in the grave, I'm going to call them out. And they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. He says it again, Jesus, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, as I stay in touch with the Father, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. They are familiar with all of these passages. Daniel 12, 2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. This is going to happen. This is no myth. This is no hyperbole. This is going to happen. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, I want you to stick with me for a minute because what he's speaking of, what we're about to speak of here, are two resurrections. And and they are categories. They're not events. There's a resurrection unto life, and there's a resurrection unto condemnation, some say, or damnation, the same thing. And we know the resurrection of life began with Christ when he was raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. He was the first one to do this, to ever rise from the dead and continue to live of those who have fallen asleep. So all of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and, they, and when they sleep, they will be, their bodies will be resurrected again. That's what he's saying. Now, I don't really understand. I really don't understand what Matthew chapter 27, I haven't figured that out yet, speaks of when, I don't know what to do with this group of people, when Jesus Christ, remember, when he resurrects from the grave and the, uh, the curtain in the temple is torn And the Bible says those that were in the graves, they come out. I can't put them anywhere yet. I can't place them anywhere yet. I'm still working on that one, but I can with the rest. Then we have the church of the firstborn. That's us, you guys, at the rapture of the church. Those that will be living, but those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We are the church of the firstborn. We are the bride of Christ. First Thessalonians 4, 16 puts it, puts it this way. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Exactly at that moment, Michael and that 70th week of his ministry begins because right now it's been 69 weeks. That's the Jewish calendar. God puts them off track because they did not know this thou day when Jesus came into Jerusalem. He just sets them off track, and that is the church age. 
But when the rapture happens, in my opinion, he places, he begins to deal with the Jew for these seven years that's going to be left. And remember, in that seven-year period after the church is caught up, you have these two prophets outside of Jerusalem, which prophecy for three and a half years, and then they're going to be killed. And after three days, they will resurrect. They too are part of that first resurrection. Then you have the Old Testament saints raised. And it seems those that are going to be martyred for their faith in this uh, seven-year tribulation period, those who turn to Christ, they will be resurrected into the kingdom age. That's what the Jew has always wanted to see. They will be raised into the kingdom age, that millennial thousand-year reign. They are part of that first resurrection. And then remember, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He's loosed. Then all of a sudden, when that happens and he's defeated for the last time, here comes the judge. Here he comes. This is what Jesus is speaking of. When he comes on the scene, the Bible says, the heavens will flee from his presence, the glorified Christ. And all you will see is a great white throne. That's the picture now. The believer will never be judged. We will have rewards. We will lose rewards at the Bema seat of Christ. But that's not unto condemnation or damnation. We're talking about that white throne judgment where Jesus is seated on it. And he's about to judge all of those who will be lost. This is the second resurrection. Everyone who stands before that throne stands before the judge and they will be lost once again. I'm looking forward to my glorified body. I can't wait to get it. Because my glorified body will be just like Jesus' glorified body. I can pass through walls. I can move and go to one planet. I believe there will still be planets to somewhere else at the speed of thought. Not at the speed of sound. That's fast. But the speed of thought. I think it, I'm there. I can't wait to get it. I've never had a fast car, fast truck in my life. But if I could, I would put it on the highway and run with it. But I won't have to worry about that. My body will be able to do those things. And just like the believer will have that glorified body, oh, God's not going to, God will have a body fitted for suffering, for eternity, for those who did not put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's my point. That's why Jesus here is, is, making a poignant point, trying to get these religious leaders to understand they are in the lurch. They are in the valley of decision. And God is saying, yes, I'm the resurrection and the life. Yes, I'm the one who will judge. And you guys aren't esteeming me. You're not placing any value on me. He says in verse 28, once again, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. 
Now, what is he saying there? I'm going to be weighed on a scale if I do good, how many times I do good or how many times I do bad. No, he's not speaking of that for the believer. My good is placing my trust, repenting of my sins and placing my trust in Jesus Christ. He will clean me up. All I've got to do is believe on him the Father has sent. Trust, put all my weight on him. He'll do the cleaning up. I found that out. Lord, I'm a mess. I can't do good, but I believe you can change me. I believe you can transform my life because I've tried 12-step programs. I've tried being good. I've tried all of those things, and after a week or maybe two or three months, I'm back to the same. So, Lord, you clean me up. I trust that you can. I trust that you can give me a new life after 32 years. And he did. And he continues to clean my life up. So I place my trust in him. So it's a transformation of lives. I just can't live any way I want to. Say I've been born again and belong to Jesus Christ. There has to be a change. Not that I'm perfect, but there has to be a transformation. And the Holy Spirit will do it. That's what it takes to live life differently. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read all 10 verses because it's a great verse. This is what it says. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. Because I am a believer now, I can walk in those good works. So there's a resurrection unto heaven to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for every believer in Jesus Christ. Or there's one, a resurrection to condemnation. And you don't want that one. That's what Jesus is saying. He says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, notice what he says, my witness is not true. The Mishnah said, if any rabbi, if any prophet would give witness testimony to himself, you can throw it out of court. Don't listen to him. Null and void. That's why Jesus says this. But then he goes on to say, there is another who bears witness of me. And that word another there is alos, one of the same. 
speaking of the Father, speaking of the Spirit. I don't have to have a testimony from man because he says in chapter one, I already know what's in man. No one has to tell me about man. So I don't need any testimony from men. Thank you. He's going to say, thank you, John, but I don't need that one. I have a testimony greater than all of those. That's what he's saying. Another of the same kind. He says, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. That's amazing. That's confidence. Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Some days follow me as I follow Christ. I'm still, he's still working on me. Most days follow me as I follow Christ. That's the goal. He says in verse 33, you have sent to John. You call for John. You sent people out to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Remember, John had testified of Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? He says no to all those things. Well, tell us who you are because they've told us to come out here, and we need to bring some information back to these religious leaders. Remember what he said? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight, listen, the way of Jehovah. That's what he says. Once again, showing that Jesus is God. Make way the straight for Jehovah. I don't understand why people can't see it. Put it together. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those whose the eyes have been blinded. We need to pray. He says in verse 34, yet I do not receive testimony from man. There he goes. But I say these things that you may be saved. John, remember what he had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They had that testimony. You said John was a prophet, Jesus is saying. So why don't you believe what he's saying? He's testifying of me. Verse 35, he gave John some cred. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What changed? He was burning inwardly. That's why he was shining outwardly. We need to burn inwardly, seeking his face in his word, in prayer, so that we can burn outwardly. That's what the world needs, to be truly passionate for the Lord. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you're not. We hate that. Duplicity is being two things at once. I can do that every once in a while, and that's confusing to people. But integrity, being one with what you say and how you act, and that's what John the Baptist was. John was genuine. He was the real deal. But that's not enough for being a witness for Jesus. He says in verse 36, But I have a greater witness, here it is, than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me. Those seven signs and all those other miracles, that's what he's saying. You should know, I'm testifying that no no man can do this, only God can do this. Remember Nicodemus had come to him and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these miracles unless God is with them. With him. He says in verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. 
You have neither heard his voice, never ever heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, never ever seen his form. So he's firing back with both barrels because once again, they are in the lurch. He's trying to save them. You know, people will say real quick, I don't want to offend people. I don't want to be offensive. I started to share, but I don't want to offend them. What's offensive is for the person that you walk by once a week or once a month or every day and you never share the gospel and that person open their eyes up in hell. That's offensive. That reminds me of the rich man in Lazarus. Remember what he says? Oh, Father Abraham, I have five brothers Just let someone go back and give witness to them. That would be good. But God is not going to let you off the hook because he tells them, you have Moses and the prophets. Hear them. You have the word. We have the word of God. Unbelievers, no telling how many Bibles they have in their home. We have the word. We have the word on tape. We have the word on the Internet. We have the word on video. We have the word everywhere. The problem is not having the word. But does the word have us? Pray that the Lord will open unbelievers' eyes here. That's what Jesus is doing. He's pleading. He's witnessing. He's preaching and teaching what's going to happen if they don't give their lives to the Lord. Mark, stop turning my mic off. I'm almost finished. (laughs) Just joking. He always talks about that quickly. Verse 38. But you do not have, Jesus says, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Now, he doesn't say you read the scriptures, because what the religious leaders were doing, they were scrutinizing the scriptures. They were trying to show that this man, Jesus Christ, is not God. So he says, you're scrutinizing the scriptures. That's why you can't find him. You don't want to find him. I love what Psalms 40, verse 6 through 8 says. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Jesus speaking, my ears have you opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within me. We shouldn't make the Bible an academic study. We should be in the word to learn of the Lord and say, Lord, Cleanse my heart. Reveal Jesus to me. Reveal my evil ways, Lord, and change me. But when you're reading, the religious leaders were reading to be puffed up, to contain knowledge. The Bible says knowledge does what? It puffs up. But love edifies. That's why we should be in the word, that it will change us. That's what he's telling them now. You know, people ask me why I know and why I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Savior of all men, that he's God. People say, I know that I know that I know. I might can't show you every verse in the Scripture and make your eyes be open, but I know what he's done in my life. I know when my, my dad passed away, 
When my brother passed away, I wasn't a believer, but my mom was and my dad was. And they said, the only way we got through that was believing in Jesus Christ. He would come and just succor them and love them and strengthen them. And then when my dad passed, we were worried about mama and he just came once again. I know how he can just wrap your arms around you. And while you're reading the word, especially when suffering and hard times come, then the living word comes to you and gives you everything you need to continue to live on this planet until we're called home. He says in verse 40, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Wow. I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. The Jews were known very well for that. Even in 70 AD, uh, a, a, a man comes, a prophet comes and said, hey, we, the Lord told me we need to go to the temple and we will survive in the temple. But when the temple re- was destroyed, thousands of people passed away. That ultimate deception will come with Antichrist. And the Jews in general, they're ripe for Antichrist because they're still waiting on what? The first coming of Christ. And so when Antichrist shows up, they think he's going to be a political figure, going to sign that seven-year peace treaty. They're going to flock to him. Jesus says, if one comes in someone else's name, him you will hear. We need to be in the scriptures. We need to be learning of him. Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Imagine that a culture who looks for honor from one another. I think of Instagram. I think of TikTok. I think if you make a video and you get all these hits, we're just looking for honor for one another. I'm reminded when I used to watch the Academy Awards, and it's so funny, or any of those awards, they just get together, and what do they do? They honor one another. That's all they do, honor one another. Jesus says, that's your problem here. That can be our problem. Now, it shouldn't be our problem now that we're born again, but we worry about what others say. We honor one another. He says, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. You claim that you keep the law and you hold on to Moses, the Pentateuch, and the law and all these things. And the thing that you're holding on to is cutting at the wires because Moses is going to condemn you. I've come to give you life. I've come to give you grace. Yet you hold me back. That's what he's saying. Verse 46, then he crushes them. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. The road to Emmaus, those two disciples, Cleopas is one of them, sad, dejected, rejected. Jesus shows up and blinds their eyes so they don't know who he is and begins to question them. Why are you guys so sad? 
Are you the only one from Israel that don't know what's happened? He tries to rebuke Jesus. Jesus kind of probably, probably chuckled. And he begins to, they begin to tell them why they are so sad. We thought, we thought this Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to come and rule and, and break the Romans' reign and all these things. But our hopes have been dashed. And what does the scripture say? And he began from Moses to the prophets. What a Bible study. And began to reveal himself, Jesus Christ, in the book. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's what this word will do when you go to it without any preconceived ideas. We go to it and say, Lord, humble me by your word. I've come to learn of you. I want to see Jesus so that I can follow him and he will open your eyes. That's what he does here. And then verse 47, the worship team can come up. He says, but if you do not believe his writings, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? Please, don't listen to anyone else's opinion about Jesus Christ. Go to the scriptures yourself and go without any preconceived ideas and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. And for a believer, Lord, spiritual maintenance is health. Let me not push your word to a side for any other things. Let me have a passion and a love for you that will change me. That I will become, if I'm not, a burning lamp like John. And the only way I can become a burning lamp like John is to be kindled from the fire of God. It's a change from the inside. We all need that from glory to glory. We're not home yet. We're on our way. We want to live holy and godly lives. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to do those things. No need to be weary. No need to be downcast. Jesus is my father, is always working, and I'm working also. So we have the best people on the job to bring us into an expected end. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you for who you are, for opening our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What a pitiful state we were all in once upon a time. And I hope and I pray that no one in this building or no one watching is a walking dead. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, which they never will anyway, and lose his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Hmm, that's a pitiful state. And we were all there once upon a time. Lord, continue to remind us to seek first your kingdom and its righteousness and all these other things will be added on to us. Keep the main thing the main thing, walking with our Savior throughout the day. Lord, would you bless everyone here to remind us of that spiritual maintenance to be aligned back to your word that we may live for you. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.